Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, The Sovereignty of God. All right, well, if you were with us last week, you know that in Romans chapter 8, Paul took us way up to the mountaintop. He took us to a spiritual mountaintop, and from that position, we were able to see a panoramic, beautiful view of the promises that God has made to his children. Promises, by the way, that extend from eternity past all the way to eternity future. And so we saw, as we were on the mountaintop, we saw um, these amazing promises that before God formed the world in eternity past. If you know Jesus, he knew you. Way before you loved God, he loved you. He knew you in an intimate way. Not only that, he predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. And then in this life, his spirit called you, wooed you into a relationship with himself. By the way, there's only one way to God, and that's through his son, Jesus. So whenever you put your trust in Jesus Christ, his blood washed away your sins. God said you're justified, okay? And so he declared you righteous. And if that's not enough, his promises extend to eternity future where God said, I'm going to give you a brand new body. I am going to glorify you. So we stood on the mountaintop and we saw um, not only these amazing promises, but we got another promise at the end of the chapter last week, and that is nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, man, pretty lofty stuff. We were on the mountaintop last week, but this week, as we turn to chapter 9, Paul's going to take us down into the valley, at least for the first five verses. Paul's going to take us down into a valley, and he's going to reveal his heartache and his tears for those who have rejected Jesus as their Messiah and as their Lord. And so if you're ready to dig into God's Word, just say amen. Okay, look at chapter 9, verse 1. If you're visiting with us, uh, just know um, we're really big about studying the Bible. So it's important to have your Bibles and to follow along. Chapter 9, verse 1, I tell you the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ. Literally, he's saying, I could wish that I myself were damned to hell. For my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, that's the the national adoption of Israel, the glory, that's the Shekinah glory that filled the tabernacle and later the temple, the covenants, that's the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant. The giving of the law, that's not just the Ten Commandments, that's all 613 found in Torah. The service of God, that's the Levitical priesthood service. Again, tabernacle, later the temple. 
and the promises, that's the hundreds of promises in the Old Testament that one day a deliverer, a savior, a Messiah would come. He says, of whom are the fathers, that's the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and from whom, okay, Paul saves the best for last, from whom, according to the flesh, who came? Christ came. Notice from whom? He's a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus was a Jew. I hear all this kind of crazy stuff that, of, of people's speculations about Jesus, you know, um, ethnic origin. He was a Jew, okay? It's right there in black and white. It's all over the Bible. And so from whom, according to the flesh, okay, he was a man, Christ came And now, ladies and gentlemen, one of the most powerful verses in the entire Bible supporting the deity of Jesus, look at this, at the end of verse 5, who is over all the eternally blessed, who? God. And all God's people said, (laughs) amen, right? Paul is excited because he knows That Jesus was not just a man. He was not just a prophet. He was not just a good teacher. He was actually God in the flesh. So Paul, in verse 2, takes us down into the valley. He says, I have great sorrow, and I have continual grief in my heart. And if somebody were to ask him, Paul, you know, why are you so sad? He would say, I'm sad because of my countrymen, my fellow Jews, my fellow Jewish brothers and sisters who have rejected Jesus as Messiah and Lord, they have rejected that Jesus is overall the eternally blessed God. Now, not all of them. Those of you guys who know your Bibles, you know that the, the first church in Jerusalem at the, in the beginning was 100% Jewish, Right? And so, um, as the, and that, by the way, in Acts, that was a mega church. Thousands and thousands and thousands of, of Jews receiving Jesus as their Messiah. Okay, so not all of them, but the vast majority of them have absolutely rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And so in chapter 8, Paul on the mountaintop, he's joyful, right? He's joyful for all those people who have, have received Christ as Messiah and Lord, Jesus as Messiah and Lord. But in chapter 9, he's down in the valley. He's sorrowful for those who have rejected Jesus. So, don't we feel the same way, by the way? We feel so happy for our friends and neighbors and family members and coworkers who know Jesus. Right? We're so happy that their sins are forgiven and they're on their way to heaven. But aren't we so sad for our friends, neighbors, coworkers, and family members who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ? And you say, well, why do you sorrow? Right? Here's why we sorrow. Because we love them. And we want to spend eternity with them. But we know that if they persist in their atheism or if they persist in their agnosticism or if they persist in their unbelief, that Jesus was God in the flesh who died on a cross for their sins, if they continue to put off receiving him as their Savior and their Lord, listen, they will perish. They will absolutely go out into eternity 
without God. And that leads you to your first point if you're taking notes. Allow your heart to be broken like Paul's was, broken for the lost, and pray hard for their salvation. So important, ladies and gentlemen. Here's my big warning. My big warning is that you do not allow your heart to become callous toward a lost world that's all around us. My, my, my warning today is that you do not, I do not allow our, our hearts to become callous, especially towards our, our loved ones and our friends and our neighbors. I love, you don't have to turn there, but I love um, Psalm chapter 126, verses 5 and 6. Listen to this. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. And so there's a principle there when you apply those two verses in Psalm 126, 5 and 6. When you apply those two verses to our desire to see lost people get saved, when you, there's a principle, and that is this. That when we sow the gospel in tears, we will reap the harvest in joy. You see, the problem is that a lot of Christians think witnessing is all about apologetics alone. They think it's all about some kind of intellectual debate with someone who does not believe in Jesus, and they're going to try to win the debate. Let me tell you something. If that is your approach, you will never win anybody to Christ. It's not an intellectual debate. This is you. This is me allowing our hearts to be broken for lost people. And then before they ever hear our talk, they ought to see our walk and our love for them. And then the Holy Spirit, as he draws them, does the work of regeneration eventually when they put their trust in Jesus Christ. Ask God to break your heart for the lost. Pray for them regularly. And then as God opens doors, and you'll know when that time happens, be faithful to share the love of Jesus Christ with them. I want to ask you guys to do something. I want to ask you guys to put this into practice, to put Paul's heart into practice this week. This week, I want to ask you guys to make a list. Make a list, whether you're typing on your laptop or your computer, maybe writing it out, but make a list of everybody that you know who is lost, doesn't know Jesus as their Savior. Start with your family members. Bam, 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 bam. Go to your friends. Bam, 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 bam. Go to your neighbors. Bam, bam. Your coworkers, right? And then at least once a week, pray for them. Now, if you will actually do that, okay? If you'll actually do that, what you'll find is that week after week, month after month, year after year, and by the way, sometimes it takes years, okay? And hopefully it'll, it'll happen a lot sooner than that, but you'll find that your heart becomes like the heart of the Apostle Paul. You will have continual grief. You say, Pastor Mike, what a downer. Man, I don't want to walk around with continual grief. You need to embrace grief for the lost. You need to embrace sorrow for lost people. It's what Spurgeon called, by the way, a noble sorrow. And so ask God every week, ask God, Lord, break their hearts, soften their hearts, draw them into a relationship with you, put thoughts of eternity in their hearts, do whatever it takes to save their souls. Your heart, over time, will break 
like the Apostle Paul's heart. Now, Spurgeon again, he calls this a noble sorrow. We, on the other hand, become sorrowful over the most trivial things, don't we? Somebody gossips about us and we get all in a funk, all sad, all downhearted because so-and-so is talking about me behind my back, right? Or our car, even though we, 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 we get this new car and we, we park it way far in the parking lot of Walmart or Publix where no one could ever touch it and we walk out of Publix or Walmart and there's a ding in our door and we're so upset, we're so sad over the most trivial thing. Guys, our favorite sports team loses the game, and our wives can't talk to us for a whole day. Ooh, right? What is up with that? I remember when I was in my 20s, I used to, underline used to, root for a team over in Tampa who lost all the time. And in my 20s, literally, it would take me a whole day to get over a big loss. You say, what happened? I grew up. And I realize in life what's important and what's not so important. It's just the game, right? And so, hey, we get so sad about the most trivial things, but somebody that we know and love doesn't know Jesus Christ, and somehow we're okay with that? No, it's because we're not praying. But if we would pray regularly, our hearts, the Holy Spirit would break our hearts for the salvation of their souls. Spurgeon said this, condensed quote, Get love for the souls of men. Then you won't be whining about the little disturbances that John and Mary may make by their idle talk. You will be delivered from petty worries if you are concerned about the souls of men. When certain persons come to me with their sentimental sorrows, I wish the Lord would fill them with a love for souls and make their heart break for their conversion. You would no longer weep over a molehill if you would begin to move mountains. And if we would just make that list and we would just pray at least once a week, we'd find that God will move a mountain. Because how many of you guys believe that he is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance? 2 Peter 3.9. Not only did Paul weep for Israel... Jesus wept for Israel. In Luke chapter 19, you guys remember this? Triumphal entry. We call it Palm Sunday. There's the Lord, right? And he's on the back of a donkey as prophesied in Zechariah. And before he gets too close to Jerusalem, he's up on the Mount of Olives. And the the, the road twists and turns. And all of a sudden, he's coming down the western slope of the Mount of Olives. And all of a sudden, he can see the entire old city of Jerusalem And what does Jesus do as people are saying, um, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What does he do when he sees Jerusalem? Does anybody remember? He cries. He weeps. The word weep in the Greek means to bewail. Jesus on the donkey wailed for Jerusalem. We're talking about loud crying. We're talking about sobbing and shoulders going up and down. Whenever I go to Israel, I'm standing on the western slope of the Mount of Olives, and I see the old city of Jerusalem, a lot of times that'll come back to my mind. So why was Jesus so upset? 
he was upset because he knew that even though some of the Jews in Jerusalem would receive him as their Messiah, most would not. And so he was brokenhearted for the lost. Jesus would say to Jerusalem, Jerusalem, this was supposed to be your special day, the day of your visitation, the prophesied day from back in Daniel chapter 9. This was the day of the coming of your Messiah, but you missed it. You're blinded. And over the centuries, Jesus would say, who, by the way, at the end of verse 5, is the eternally blessed God. Jesus would say to the Jewish nation, over the years, I gave you my adoption. I gave you my Shekinah glory. I gave you my covenants. I gave you my law. I gave you my temple service. I gave you my promises. I gave you my patriarchs. And now I'm giving you myself. But your attitude is thanks but no thanks. You've missed your day. John was right when he said in John 1.11, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. Now, we're in Romans 9. Chapter 8, mountaintop promises for people like us. In chapter 12, all the way through 16, amazing practical things for the Christian life. But in the middle there, there's 9, 10, and 11. Filled, by the way, with great application for us today. But you got to understand, why does Paul say what he says about Israel in chapters 9, 10, and 11? Well, here's why. I'm setting you up for the rest of the sermon, okay? Here's why. Israel's rejection of her Messiah caused many people, both 2,000 years ago and for the last 2,000 years, many people to become confused, okay? Their thinking is this. <clears throat> Didn't God elect Israel? I mean, I know I read that somewhere in the Old Testament. Didn't God elect Israel? So if God elected Israel, why did they reject their Messiah 2,000 years ago when he came on the donkey? If God elected Israel and his election of Israel failed, then what about his election of the church? Could it also fail? In other words, all the mountaintop promises of chapter 8 um, that, that God foreknew us and predestined us and called us and justified us and will glorify us, could that fail? Okay, let Paul answer as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit in verse 6. Okay, so chapter 9, verse 6, here we go. But it is, what's the word? Not that the word of God has taken no effect. In other words, it is not that the promises of God have failed. It's not that the election of God has failed. Why, Paul? End of verse 6. For they are not all Israel who are Israel. So if you're taking notes, here you go. Even though Israel rejected Jesus as Messiah, God's promises to them did not fail. Why? For they are not all Israel who are Israel. In other words, they are not all Israel, true Old Testament believers who make up the whole nation of Israel. Are we making sense this morning? In other words, you can be a Jew, a, a, a physical descendant of Abraham, 
and still not be a spiritual descendant of Abraham. Said another way, you can be a Jew who has Abraham's blood pumping through your veins and yet not have the faith of Abraham residing in your heart because they are not all Israel who are Israel. Okay, so did God's election fail? No, no, the good news is that all true Old Testament believers, okay? So we're in 2016. I'm going all the way back 2,000 years and then another 2,000 years, okay? Okay, so way back in Old Testament times, any time a Jew would look forward, believing the promises of God that there's a deliverer, a Messiah is coming to save us, and he would put, she would put their faith in that Messiah, they absolutely were saved, God's election has not failed. It can never fail. They'll, those Jews will absolutely inherit the kingdom when Jesus someday comes back and establishes his kingdom on the earth because, again, God's election cannot fail. Now, the same thing that's true in the Old Testament is true in the New Testament. Just like Paul said, they are not all Israel who are Israel. So we can say... They are not all Christians who call themselves Christians. You ask somebody, how do you know you're a Christian? Are you a Christian? Here's the answer you'll sometimes get. Uh, well, you know, my dad was a deacon, and my mom was in the choir, and so, yeah, I'm a Christian. Uh, newsflash. You can have your parents' blood pumping through your veins and not have your parents' faith in your heart. But I go to church. My car goes to church every Sunday. My car's not saved. <laughs> Salvation is not the result of ancestry. Salvation is the result of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Period. Amen. Period. God has no grandchildren. He only has children. You've got to make up your mind to get off the fence and commit your life to Jesus Christ. Between you and him alone. Listen, lots of people call themselves Christians. The crusaders called themselves Christians, and they went to the Holy Land, and they, they fought war, a holy war, to kill Muslims, to take back the Holy Land. Let me tell you something. That's a... A, a black spot on church history. They were not Christians. A born-again Christian is somebody who receives Jesus as their Savior and Lord, and they have the same heart as Jesus, and that is a heart of love for everybody and anybody. Okay? And so make sure, I'm, 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 I'm afraid. I'm afraid that some of you guys come on Sunday morning, and you think because your parents were Christians, or it's in your heritage, or you go to church that you're a Christian. Not necessarily so. Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? And the good news is that all true New Testament believers who look back to the Messiah and put their trust in him, they too will inherit all the promises of Romans chapter 8. Why? Because God's election cannot fail. So what's the question on the table? Again, the question is, people were saying, Paul, not all of Abraham's descendants have a heart for God. Did God's election fail? Paul said, well, not only is not all Israel Israel, but look at verse 7. Nor 
are they all children because they are of the seed of who? Abraham, Father Abraham, right? Okay, now, Abraham, you need to know, had at least two sons. He had more, but for the sake of our message today, he had at least two sons. His first son was Ishmael. His second son was Isaac. And as we continue now to read verse 7, it says, In Isaac your seed shall be called. Verse 8. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, that's the descendants of Ishmael, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At that time, I will come and who will have a son? Sarah will have a son. Here's your next point if you're taking notes. God sovereignly chose Isaac over Ishmael. Now, I Facebooked last week about churches that the, the purpose of their message is to help you win at life, to give you a positive message, to make you feel good about yourself, to help you be successful. And I talked about in my Facebook post how the purpose of a message is not to help people win at life. The purpose of a message is to teach God's word and help people be conformed to the image of Jesus. And so what you need to know is that those churches in America that want to help you win at life, they're never going to tell you that. But churches that are faithful to go verse by verse by verse by verse, hey, we're just teaching God's word here. What does God's word say? God sovereignly chose Isaac over Ishmael. Some of you are new to the Bible, so I got to tell you the story. I'm just going to give you the Reader's Digest story, okay, from back in Genesis. There was a guy named Abram. Before he was Abraham, his name was Abram. And he was married to a woman named Sarai. Before she was Sarah, she was Sarai. Okay, and when they were, when he was 75 and she was 65, they lived in a land that was filled with idolatry and paganism called Ur of the Chaldeans in modern-day Iraq. And if you look at, don't look at it now, write, write down somewhere, Joshua 24.2, you'll see that Abram was a pagan. Okay? Abram, along with his daddy, worshipped idols. But here's what you need to know, that God, a sovereign God, chose, elected Abraham. He said, I want you. And I want to make a covenant with you. And by the way, Abram was not looking for God. We don't look for God. He looks for us. God went looking and he found Abraham and he chose him and he gave him what's called the Abrahamic covenant. This is Bible 101. You got to know this. And my heart breaks because I think the majority of our church doesn't even know how to explain the Abrahamic covenant. It's Bible 101. Hey, how many of you guys believe this is God's word? This is his revelation to us. We got to know this. I don't know why Christians feel like I don't need to know this. Yes, you do. If you're going to be who God wants you to be and do who, what God wants you to do, you got to know the God's word. I'm not going to say, I'm not saying you got to be a theologian, but you ought to at least know the basics. So let me give you the basics. This is the Abrahamic covenant. God promises Abraham, I will, I will, I will, okay? Okay, so this is an unconditional covenant. 
Abraham didn't have to do anything. God said, I'm going to do this. I will make your descendants a what? I will be God to your descendants. I will give the land of Canaan to your descendants and in your seed, capital S, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's another promise in the Old Testament of the coming Messiah. God said to Abram, this is an everlasting covenant. Okay? And so, look at point number one. God says, Abram, I want to make your descendants a great nation. And so Abram, 75, Sarai, 65, continue to do what married couples do, but for 10 years, they can't get pregnant. Now he's 85, she's 75. And so when you're reading through Genesis, here's what you find out. Sarai goes to her husband, and she says something like this, honey, God said he was going to make your descendants a great nation. It's hard to be a father of a great nation if you can't father one son. We've been trying for 10 years. I'm still barren. I have an idea. Be careful about your idea. I have an idea. You see my young, beautiful Egyptian maid, Hagar? Why don't you marry her? And then I can obtain children by her. And we don't know. The Bible is silent. But I, I think, I don't know, he probably looked at Hagar and looked at his wife and said, well, if you insist. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if he said that or not. I got to be careful what I say because I'm going to meet all these guys in heaven someday. And that could be a little scary. But anyway, the bottom line is Abram married Hagar. She got pregnant. She had a child. Anybody know his name? Ishmael. Bam. Problem solved. Abram's thinking in his mind, I did it. You know? Now God's covenant with me can go forward with my young son Ishmael. Hey, isn't God so fortunate to have Abram and Sarai help him fulfill his promise? Because we all know that Almighty God isn't able to fulfill his own promises. You guys see where I'm going here? He never asked them to help him out. God is sovereign. He doesn't need our help to fulfill his promises. Their plan was not God's plan. It was a work of the flesh and it showed their lack of faith in God. And some of you, here's your mentality. I've come up with a great idea, and I'm going to do this. And you begin to do it, and you're saying, God bless me, God bless me, God bless me. God bless my idea. Maybe you're starting a business. Maybe you're doing something else. God bless my idea. And after one, two, three, four years, everything crashes and burns. And you're like, disillusioned with God. What happened? And God says, it was a work of the flesh. I never told you to do that. Ladies and gentlemen, we don't come up with ideas, implement them, and ask God to bless them. No, we spend time on our knees, and we discern the will of God. And then when God speaks, and it's confirmed by an elder or a pastor or somebody we look up to, 
and it doesn't contradict the word, then we take steps of faith and God blesses because it's a work of the Spirit. And so God was silent after the Hagar incident. He was silent for 13 years. But when Abram was 99 and Sarai was 89, God appeared to Abram again because, listen, this is an unconditional covenant. God will do what he said he's going to do. All those promises in chapter 8, they're for you. God will do it. Okay? And so this is what God says to 99-year-old Abram. Um, No longer will your name be Abram. Now it will be Abraham because I'm going to make you a father of many nations. No longer is your wife's name Sarai. Now it's Sarah because I'm going to give you a son by her. And all of a sudden, Abraham is shocked, right? He loves Ishmael. He falls on his face. He laughs in his heart. How can a man who's 100 years old and his wife is 90, how can they have a kid? And then, listen to the heart of Abraham. No doubt weeping, he says to God, let Ishmael live before you. I'm quoting here from Genesis 17, verse 18. Let Ishmael live before you. In other words, let Ishmael carry on the covenant. Let Ishmael and his descendants be that great nation. Let them have you as their God. Let them inherit the promised land. Let them produce the Messiah. And God says in Genesis 17, 9, no. No. Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And so four chapters later, in chapter 21, all of a sudden we read, Sarah is 90 years old. She gives birth to a boy. They call his name Isaac. You guys remember what his name means? Laughter. Because like I've told you before, That's what you do when a 90-year-old woman has a baby. Just laugh and laugh with joy. And so God sovereignly chose Isaac over Ishmael. Now, don't misunderstand. God blessed Ishmael. You go back and read Genesis 17, Genesis, um, and and following, you see he blessed Ishmael. But isn't it interesting that his descendants make up the Arab nations today? many of whom are the bitter enemies of Israel, the descendants of Jacob, to this day. Now, that is not to say that individual Arabs can never be saved. That's asinine. That is not to say that individual Arabs cannot give their lives to Jesus and believe in the true God, Yahweh, of the Bible. Millions have over the years but most have not. And we all know, starting in the beginning of the 7th century A.D., that Arabia became the cradle of Islam. Please, church family, don't let anyone try to persuade you that Allah is the same as Yahweh. He's not. Please don't let anyone try to persuade you that the Koran is basically the same as the Bible. It is not. And please don't let anybody tell you that Muhammad and Jesus 
were prophets. One was a false prophet. The other one, according to the end of verse 5, is overall the eternally blessed God. See, what we have to understand is what the Bible teaches. And then we won't believe the nonsense that all roads lead to heaven no matter what religion you ascribe to. Not so. Not so. And so Islam does not believe that Jesus was and is God. Islam does not believe that Jesus died on a cross to pay for your sins. Listen, according to the New Testament, that's the spirit of Antichrist. Okay? And so we have to know the Word of God. We have to understand what the Bible teaches. That'll never happen unless we're in it regularly reading. And when, we, when the truth is given to us, the truth will absolutely set us free. Isaac grew up, the chosen one, Isaac, grew up, he married Rebekah. Rebekah got pregnant. She gave birth to twins. The older was Esau, father of the Edomites. The younger was Jacob. Which of them do you think was chosen by God to carry on the Abrahamic covenant? Jacob. Check out verse 10. Here's the second illustration that God's election cannot fail. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to, what's the word? Election. I know it bothers some of you guys, but it's right there in black and white, just like it was back in chapter 8, verse 33. That the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works. But of him who calls, it was said to her, Rebecca, the older, that's Esau, shall serve the younger, that's Jacob. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau have I hated. Now, Paul there is quoting, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, from Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, where Malachi is talking about the descendants of Jacob and the descendants of Esau. Specifically, that's the Edomites who down through the ages never had a heart for God. Now, I want to clear something up right away, okay, before you guys think something the Bible is teaching that it's not. When it says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, that does not mean Hatred does not mean what you're thinking, okay? Um, it's a Hebrew idi- um, idiom. It literally means to love less. The idea here is when it comes to the Abrahamic covenant, Jacob have I chosen, but Esau have I rejected. God does not hate anybody. How do you know, Pastor? John three sixteen. That's pretty good evidence, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Okay, God loves everybody. He loves Jews. He loves Muslims. He loves Hindus. He loves uh, followers of the Dalai Lama. He loves rich people, poor people, black people, white people, oriental people. God loves everybody, okay? Okay. And so I I emphasize that because here's my fear. 
as we see our current culture and we see what radical Muslims are doing against society, what some Christians will do is, let's go for a holy war. Let's take them out. Let's kill them. And you got the same mentality as the Christian crusade, Christian crusaders. And it's not from God. Listen, in John, when, when the Samaritan village rejected Jesus, and John and his brother James said, Lord, let's call fire down on them. What did Jesus do? He rebuked them. He said, you don't know what spirit you're of. Here's the truth. God hates religious systems that deny his son and deny the truth of God's word. But God absolutely loves people. And he's not willing that anybody should perish, but that all should come into repentance. And so we got to be careful. You say, well, what do we do about radical Islam? Uh, pray for your military. Pray for the police officers. Pray for your security guards. Exercise your Second Amendment right while you still have that right, okay? It's fine to defend yourself, but don't go on the offensive. Don't have hatred in your heart, and don't go out with this mentality that we're going to take out Muslims. If you have that mentality here in this church, you will absolutely be asked to leave because we Love all people, period. All people. I don't know how how to make it any clearer than that. And so when it comes to the Abrahamic covenant, it's not Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. God says it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Someone says, why God? He says, because Jacob have I chosen and Esau have I rejected. Well, that's not fair. Can you explain yourself, God? No. (laughs) Psalm 115, verse 3, the Lord is in his heaven. He does anything he wants to do. That's the Mike Wiggins translation. Let me give you the real, (laughs) make sure I get this from the New King James Version. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Ladies and gentlemen, God is sovereign. You're not. God is the creator and sustainer of all things. We're not. God is the supreme ruler of all. We're not. God is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, eternal, and sovereign. We're not. And my favorite attribute of God, at least my favorite, is that God is good. And you can always trust him to do the right thing. Okay, so stop worrying about your life. God is sovereign. Stop trying to control every little thing in your life. God is sovereign. And stop questioning God. God is sovereign. He's the potter. We're going to learn this next time. We're just the clay. You know what our attitude is? Yes, sir. And that's it. Now, if that bothers you, if that, if that, if that um, causes you to have angst against God, let me tell you something. You are on dangerous ground. A lady said to Spurgeon, I have a problem with this text. I can't figure out why God hated Esau. Spurgeon said, well, I have a problem with the text too. I can't figure out why God loved Jacob. You see, if you're not careful, you'll think, well, God knew that Jacob would be a good boy and Esau would be a bad boy, and that's why God chose Jacob. (laughs) Wrong answer. They both were bad boys. Jacob was a deceiver and a schemer. Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. 
we have to understand that God's choice is never based on our works. Did you see it in verse 11? This, this by the way, is a troubling verse, but our response is, yes, sir, okay? Verse 11, for the children, Esau and Jacob, not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. Here's your last point. God chooses us never because of our merit, always because of his grace. Listen to the word of God. For by grace are you saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift from God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Spurgeon also said, man, I'm so glad that God uh, chose me before I was born. If he would have waited till after I was born, he never would have chose me. You see that? It's nothing to do with your works. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You guys could bow your heads and close your eyes. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com. Click on Home, then Knowing Christ.